0: we're going to spend our next little while reflecting uh, on this text. Many of you are likely aware uh, of what's called uh, influencer marketing. And the, the idea behind that is basically this. If you can get a famous person, an enviable person in some way, to endorse your product, it will lead to more sales. Now this idea, it's been around maybe as long as humanity, but we actually have evidence from ancient Rome that gladiators were endorsing products for for the Roman people. But really from the 1900s, Coco Coco Chanel and others onwards, it's this major industry that mainly today takes place on social media. And and it's unspoken, but the basic idea of influencer marketing uh, is this. In front of me, you know, on a screen or whatever, in front of me is a person who has a life I want. Maybe not in every aspect, but they have something more than what I have. They are more fit or more beautiful or have, have more stuff or get more things done or whatever. They, they have more of something and now they're gonna tell you which product uh, you can use to get a life that resembles theirs. In short, they're presenting a, a sort of a shape for your life to follow. If you wanna have a life like mine, use this volumizer or journal or you know or whatever. Now, now without being too cynical about it, We might say that at times this can be helpful, right? If you're redecorating your house and you're not one of those like decorating, decorating decorating-y person, I don't know which armchair to buy, I don't know what color to paint, like a person who's skilled and, and wise in such things, they can be really helpful. Or if you don't have a clue about how to cook, you know, healthy meals, like a chef influencer or something, you know, can be a really big help. But when it comes to life as a Christian, what do you look to? Or perhaps who do you look to? And I'm not just speaking about theology and life of the mind, not just talking about which books to read. I'm talking about, what what about the whole of the Christian life? What kind of models do we have? Uh, What kind of shape should the the Christian life take? Because if we don't have any models, if there isn't anyone that we are looking to or towards, a lot of us are going to get off track. We're going to start decorating the living room, but, you know, we don't have any design sense to, like, make it look nice at the end. I think what's happening in 1 Peter, the passage we just read here, I think Peter is giving us some patterns for the Christian life. As we think about our lives, as we think about our our present, as we think about our future, there are sort of some molds we can fit into here. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, well, how does uh, the pattern of the Christian life apply to me? Maybe think of it this way. Think of it as a sneak peek into the Christian life. Oh, what does the Christian look Christian life look like and feel like from the inside? That's kind of the picture you're gonna get this morning. But I have three parts to today's message. I want to talk about the trajectory of the Christian life, secondly, the posture of the Christian life, and the shape of the Christian life. So trajectory, posture, and shape. Now, beginning in verse 10, Peter does this kind of brief dive into history to talk about, well, how have Christians arrived at the present moment in which he is writing? That's, you know, mid to late first century or whatever. And the the big theme of the first nine verses, we did this two weeks ago, the big theme there was the capital S salvation of God. All the things that God has done to rescue his people from their sin, it culminated in the work of Christ. It continues by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is saying in verse 10 is that this salvation came about first by the way of prophets, that hundreds and thousands of years before Christ, prophets were foretelling of the ways that Christ would rescue his people and pay for their sin. And Peter's telling these people, these, these new believers, the grace that is yours was carefully searched for and inquired about by the holiest and the most insightful people of the past. Yet, because of where they were sort of in history, they never arrived at a full understanding. Peter's telling them, you now have a fuller and better understanding of how God works than even these holiest people from the past. Because you know about Christ, you're actually in a far better place to understand what God was doing all the way along. Peter's sort of saying this. He's saying, a new believer in Jesus in his time understands more about God's plan for salvation than even someone like the prophet Haggai did. That, that, that if you're a Christian now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you understand more about you know, salvation than even, than even King David did. Now, I'm not saying you're more mature than King David or you understand God better. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the hints and shadows of future salvation that sort of David knew have now been unveiled, that the mystery has been revealed. Um, We we know these things now. We know what Christ was like. We know the miracles he did, what he did on the cross. King David and others only had hints of those things. But there's more in the very last part of verse 12. Peter says that, oh, believers in Jesus also understand the good news in ways that angels don't even get. Like angels, immortal, powerful beings, they wish they had a chance to look into this uh, as deeply as we do. In short, Peter's saying, we stand in this incredibly privileged position for what we know about God's salvation. Now, why do I say that tells us something about the trajectory of the Christian life? Well, because the prophets of old, what they told us was what would happen to Christ, and it's suffering before glory. That's right there in verse 11. The prophets predicted all the way along, suffering first and then subsequent glories. And of course, from the New Testament, from the Gospels, we know that's what happened, the Messiah would be known as a man of suffering who accomplished much through pain and through his death uh, and before he was glorified. And you know, interestingly, it was Peter who wrote this letter who resisted this this message, this trajectory the most. You know, at one point, Jesus is telling the disciples uh, about how he has to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and tortured and killed there. And Peter's like, Let's not do that. No, God, no, no, Jesus. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan. And it's sort of a low point, you know, in Peter's life, low point for any of us. And we think, well, that would have clued Peter in that this was really going to happen. But nope, other things happen. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is getting betrayed. Judas has brought a mob. And Peter's like, but I got a sword. He starts, you know, chopping people. Um, and he, doesn't, he doesn't understand. He's still kind of fighting against this message of suffering first, then glory. And now he gets it. He's like, that's what the prophets foretold. That's what happened. And over and over in the Christian life, or over and over in the scriptures, pardon me, we are told that we will be like Christ or to be like Christ and, and promised the same kind of treatment Christ got. Jesus tells us explicitly if they treat me like this, the master, they're going to treat you, the servants, you know, in the same way. Which means that the trajectory of the Christian life will be similar to the trajectory of Christ's life suffering before glory. That in this life, we will tend to experience trouble. But this life is not all there is. There's another life. There's glory to come in the next. Many of us are excited about the glory. We get kind of squeamish about the suffering. Is it really necessary? Maybe there's a way around it. Or maybe we can kind of fast forward future glory into the present. At times I've wondered in my life, maybe there's a way to be a Christian that will make me palatable to the world around me. Perhaps I can be cool enough, or kind enough, or loving enough, or polite enough that I'll get to duck the suffering part. And to be fair, we might say that though suffering is normative or normal for the Christian life, it still doesn't happen to every Christian. Some Christians don't suffer that much. Some Christians do get a, a, a big dose of, of earthly blessing. Some of them don't get a lot of suffering. That's fine. But, but Peter's saying, if you do suffer for the sake of Christ, or when you do, that's actually normal. That's the normal part, not the abnormal part. And in fact, Paul, in one of his letters, he, in Colossians 1, he uses this strange language where he says that the suffering by Christians fills up the afflictions of Christ, that you participate in the life of Christ somehow when you suffer for him. But really beyond that, the writers uh, all, all of the Scripture all over the place they hold out hope of the glories to come. They talk about resurrection bodies. They talk about the joy. They talk about the place that Christ prepares for his people. But the theme of the scriptures is, whatever you give up for the sake of Christ, you'll be repaid in the life to come. Hundreds of times over is what Jesus says. So, to those in present discouragement, present despair, present persecution, because because you are a Christian, the life to come, it's held out to encourage you. That's the trajectory of the Christian life. That's that's where it's heading. It's where Christ's life headed. Suffering and then glory. Part two, the posture of the Christian life. When I say posture, I don't mean Christians, you know, stand a certain way or, or pose a certain way. I'm talking about when I say posture, I mean the attitude towards life. The way you deal with the world as it comes towards you. And Peter in verse 13 tells us, Therefore, meaning... Because of the great salvation that has been promised and delivered, because of the way Christ has worked through history, there is therefore now something to do about it. And let me just point out two quick things about how he's using this word therefore. So far in First Peter, we have kind of theology, and then a therefore, and then some commands, which tell us, tells us the Christian life is not merely a philosophy or an intellectual position, but a way of life. It's impossible, according to Peter, to simply believe Christian things and not have it change your behavior. Our small group uh, here at Resurrection this fall, and a couple, we finished a couple weeks ago, but we read this book called You Are What You Love, and it's written by this guy, uh, James K.A. Smith. And at one point, he's talking about this idea of, of, how you, of what you believe changes Uh, or or should change how you behave. And he said, this all became very apparent to me one day while I was reading Wendell Berry while eating lunch at Costco. Now, if you're like, well, what does that mean? Wendell Berry, if you don't know him, he's a a Christian theologian but what he writes about is is food and food justice and care for creation, you know, connection with with the planet and stuff like that. And and so he says this author, James K. Smith, he's reading Wendell Berry and being like, this is great. Isn't this guy awesome? And he's like eating a Costco hot dog at the same time, you know, arguably this symbol of, you know, mass commercialization of food, like anything but, you know, what Wendell Berry would appreciate. And and so James K. Smith, he explains how in today's world, you can believe in organic food and, and connection to the earth or whatever, and, and go through the McDonald's drive through in the next moment. Or eat, eat in the Costco food court at the exact same time as you're appreciating uh, someone like Wendell Berry. In short, what, what James K. Smith is arguing is that our minds and behaviors don't always line up. But the Apostle Peter is saying, that's not the way it should be. If you believe in, in the salvation, then therefore there are things to do and be. There's a necessary and important connection between them. But the second important thing about this little word, therefore, is that it comes after the announcement of salvation. So first, announcement of salvation, therefore response. And in seminary, they would say things like, the imperative follows the indicative. And all they mean by that is that the commands, the things you do, are always come after the announcement of salvation, Scripturally, it happens like this all over the place. God has done something, therefore we can respond to his, to his work. God works, we respond. This is, the way, this is the way the scriptures teach it. And if you lose the order, and like it's we work, and then God responds, or if you misplace the indicative, the, 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 what God has done, it kind of messes everything up. And furthermore, the, the commands just crush us then. Because we're like, well, I can't do that. I can't, I can't live that way. We need the work of the triune God in our hearts To be able to respond in faith. So, therefore, because of all God has done, Peter says, here's the posture you should have. And the posture is this one word hope. He says Christians should move through life with a posture of hope. Now, how do we get to hope? He explains. Peter tells these Asian believers to prepare their minds for action. And there's a fun Greek idiom, like a fun Greek saying underneath here where Peter has literally written, they should gird up the loins of your, of your mind. Now, see, what that means is back in the days before, you know, stretchy running tights and polyester or whatever, uh, w- when a man needed to run, he wouldn't change clothes. All he'd do, and they, they of course, wore robes in, in, in that culture, he, w- he would pick up the bottom of his robe and sort of loop it around, flip it around, and tuck it into his waistband so that he's kind of free beneath the knees, and, and you, could, you could run or you could do some heavy work. To gird up your loins meant tuck your robe into your belt so you can, you can do something active, do something physical. In our day, we might say something like, you know, get in the starter's blocks or or lace up your shoes or put on your pump-up music or whatever. Like, you're about to spring into action, so get ready for that. But notice the preparation's not physical. He says, gird up the loins of your minds. Prepare your minds for action, which means that living with a posture of hope is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to require intensive effort. See, if you, if you don't work hard in your mind, if you aren't prepared for the effort of living with hope, you're going to naturally tend towards cynicism or negativity or skepticism or doubt or distrust or scoffing or unbelief or there's like a whole host of things and everyone kind of has their own little favorite one. But Peter's saying the loss of hope, it first begins in the mind. It, it, when difficult things come at us, when, when persecution starts up, we forget to trust in God, we get out of control, we get blown around by the world. If you're going to live with a posture of hope, Peter says, you've got to be in training. In your mind, your mind has its robe tucked into its belt, so it can do the hard work of trusting in God. But that's not it. He says, the way to hope is not only through a mind prepared for action, but also a mind that's sober. Sober-mindedness, I think it should be taken both literally and physically, First, your mind should be physically sober, should not be drunk, as we read in other parts of the scripture, should not be high on drugs, all those kinds of things. But more than that, soberness of mind means avoiding excesses of passion or of rashness. It's having a mind that doesn't kind of fly off the handle easily. Now look, to be sober-minded doesn't mean to be emotionless. We're not after a kind of Spock-like stoicism, Rather, our passions and desires, our feelings, are are like a powerful horse. And to be sober-minded doesn't mean you get rid of the horse or, you know, shoot the horse or something. No, it means you learn how to ride the horse. After all, passions, desires, feelings, these things are extremely powerful and potent when turned to the correct ends, but they must be turned to the correct ends. See, as it relates to hope, I think many find that the troubles of life lead them to want to anesthetize themselves instead of facing reality. I mean, aren't there days when we feel a compulsion to, to take something or, or do something that will numb the pain? For some, that might be alcohol, it might be drugs. For others, it's hours of streaming, indulgences and in certain kinds of food. Peter says, if you're going to be a person who lives with a posture of hope, your, your mind needs to be sharp, not dulled out, not numbed out, self-controlled. Now once your mind is ready for hard work, once it's sober, Peter says, then set your hope fully on the grace to come. And what does it mean, kind of on practical, the nitty-gritty, what does it mean to have a posture of hope? Well, I think one thing that characterizes hope is that those hopeful people are patient with life's circumstances. They understand not everything is going to happen now. God is working on longer time horizons than we are. Setting hope on future grace is an acknowledgement that, that this life in the present, it's not, all, it's not gonna be all what you want it to be. It's gonna let you down in some ways. I think hopeful people are patient people. And they're also patient with, with their own sin and the shortcomings of others. See, if Peter tells us to hope in future grace then there's sort of an implicit acknowledgement that there's still some saving to be done in the future. That we haven't been made perfect yet. We have not yet arrived. Your small group, they're not perfect. Your church friends, not perfect. This church, shockingly, we're still flawed in some significant ways. Now to be patient with sin doesn't mean we ignore it, doesn't mean we take it lightly, but we just don't get totally exasperated and fed up when change is slow. The hope and the grace to come means Jesus is still saving us. He will one day completely save us, but that day is not yet. In the meantime, we're patient. We trust in God's work. The posture of the Christian life is hope. Third, finally, the shape of the Christian life. Verses 14 and 15, Peter moves on sort of from the life of the mind to talk about our day-to-day conduct. And the main verb, the main idea in this, in this section is in verse 15 where he instructs Christians to be holy in all their conduct. Before we can understand that, though, Peter's going to make another argument. Get ready for it. From an indicative to an imperative. We're going to do this again, same as before. Verse 14 begins with sort of not a command, not something to do. It begins with a fact, a truth. He says, as obedient children, he tells them, there is something that's true about you that will inform what I'm about to tell you to do. Now, he's addressing adults who are like, that sounds kind of insulting. You <laughs> being being called a child. But but he means it as an encouragement, as a reminder of who they truly are. They are the very children of God. They they've listened to him, they've heard his voice, they've followed him, and they have now been brought into his family. That's what it means to be a child of God. Peter's telling them then, your conduct in life will flow not from your own strength, but from the understanding that God has taken you out of your old life and put you into a new family. And just like human families, God's family has a way that they do things. You know, one of the interesting parts of dating and getting married is you get to experience your own family through the lens of a person who is learning your ways for the first time, and kind of vice versa as you experience your, your spouse's family. You know, for instance, my family, uh, we don't really drink tea because tea doesn't make any sense. Um, but when I, went, when, I, when I went to Jen's house, um, everyone sits around after supper and they drink tea and they just talk to each other. I was like an anthropologist, you know, the first time, like, just like, what's happening? This, this tribe, you know, lives differently than, than my tribe, trying to figure out what do they do? And they, and they keep their bowls in, the, in a weird place and, and Christmas doesn't function right at their house. And, you know, you begin to learn all these things about your spouse's family and, of course, your spouse about your family. And then bigger things pop up. Wow, this family resolves conflict differently. This family thinks it's a big deal if you say this or don't say that. There are habits and patterns and rhythms to this family. And what Peter's telling us is the family of God is the same way. It's got rhythms and habits. It's not like your old family. There's going to be a whole number of changes. But in this new family of God, the family bases its identity, its rhythms, its behavior on God himself. See, unlike our human families, where one Christmas tradition really isn't objectively better or worse than any other, though you may want to argue about that later, but the family of God, their behavior is based on God himself, therefore better, therefore right. And if you look at verse 15 and 16, the call to holiness in the new family is simply a call to be like God. And Peter's sort of arguing for the old adage, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or like father, like son. If you are a child in the family of God, your goal, your aim is to be more like God. And then he says that means two things. First, it means not going back to the passions of your former ignorance. And second, it means holiness in all your conduct. Let's talk about the first. In the family of God, Peter encourages these believers, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word passions, you might understand it as desires, appetites, something like that. The idea is... Before a person is a Christian, they are hungry for something. They, they're thirsty for something. They have desires. They have things they want. Some of it's very obvious. Some of it's very surface level. But lots of us have deep hungers for things like control or power. And if you were here actually last week, uh, my friend Adam, a guest preacher, talked about this idea from the book of Romans that we ought not to be conformed or squeezed into the mold of our old desires. And uh, you know if you've ever started an exercise program or made a change in your diet, you always arrive at a day when you feel a craving for the old way. It's like, man, I don't want to exercise today. I want to eat the old unhealthy food I used to eat. And there's this pull physiologically, mentally, or whatever to go back to an older, unhealthier way of life. Peter's telling the new Christians, don't do that. Don't get sucked back in. You are children in a new family. This family behaves differently. There's an older book called uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life by this guy, Richard Lovelace, And he argues you can't just quit old spiritual habits, cold turkey, or, or rather, but they kind of must be, they must be displaced by something new. Like a person trying to quit smoking, it's hard to just stop smoking. It actually works better if you replace what smoking did in your life or replace that time with something else. So in a similar way, Peter's telling them not just don't get squeezed back into your old way of life, but he tells them positively, replace it with this habit of being holy like God is holy. Replace your old habit of pursuing greed with a new habit of generosity. Replace a habit of lust with a new habit of service. Put off your former passions, he says, and be holy instead. Now I want to talk just for a minute about this idea that we should be holy as God is holy. In my own personal experience and what I've read, research, and all that, this idea has at times been wielded like a club inside the church. And what I mean is that some Christians have, have taken this verse and used it to enforce their personal idea of, of, of holiness, of spiritual rules. And here's how it often works we hear this principle or this command be holy like God is holy. We're like, okay, good, check. Now, the tricky part comes when what does it mean to be holy? And sometimes we're not sure. So we're like, well, well, to me, or we start to self-define, to me it means, well, I can't watch R-rated movies, you know, unless they're about Jesus. Or I, 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 can't, I can't wear a two-piece swimsuit or, or, or some other kind of really specific rule. This is what holiness means to me. Now, here's the problem with that approach. That verse could not have meant that to the, its original hearers. And I see a principle of understanding and interpreting the Bible is a verse cannot mean to us what it could not have meant to them. Now, we're going to apply it all sorts of ways. That's fine. But this verse, I don't think, is primarily about modesty or entertainment choices. If you trace this be holy as I am holy, you look up the cross references in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that holiness meant differentiation from the surrounding nation. And if you read the Old Testament, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, you'll find God gave the Jews hundreds of laws that included regulations about food and bodily discharges and childbirth and dead bodies and festivals and skin diseases and on and on and on. And following all those laws is what made them distinctive and different. But notice, Peter doesn't give any of that to his readers. He doesn't enforce the ceremonial law. Christians, you can eat bacon. Like, it's, it's fine. But somehow, the principle of differentiation still applies. So to understand it, let's look at this wording really carefully. We are to be holy as God is holy. That means that new Christians, to whom Peter is writing, should be set apart from their culture in a way consistent with the nature of God set apart from their culture in a way that's consistent with the nature of God. If holiness is what God is, then holiness is for us to be like Christ. So the most important thing, then, that defines you if you're in a new spiritual family is that. And arguably, what sets a person, a Christian, most apart from the culture is not always outward and obvious things, but sometimes inward and spiritual things. Sometimes the inward and spiritual do have effects outwardly and obviously, but not always. See, the, Peter, or the people to whom Peter wrote, um, they would have thought, okay, this means I can't go visit temple prostitutes anymore. It means I can't swear fealty to the emperor in the same way that I could. Uh, it means that I'm now busy on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. That was the day that Christians worship. But the first change, the primary change, was inward, not outward. You're a new creation in a new family trying to be like God. See, what happens is when we define holiness by a number of rules, if you wear these kind of clothes or watch these kind of shows, you're fine. But look, holiness is not that simple. Holiness is about the posture of your heart, what you value, what you desire, what you love, and a person can obey a law, can obey a rule, while having a heart far from God. See, in every age, in every culture, a Christian's holiness is going to look different. And at times, you'll be very out of step with culture or very in step with culture. You value what they value. We look very similarly outwardly. Other times, you'll be out of step. We'll value something very different. But arguably, some of the biggest idols in our current culture might be money, might be love of self, might be control over life. And a Christian's holiness may be most defined by an attitude that's selfless and generous and and willingly ceding control to Christ in every area. And that may show up in your clothing choices. It may show up in your Netflix most recently watched. But I think that's secondary. If you want to be holy, what you must understand is Jesus Christ. He's the guide. He's the center of the target. He's what you're aiming at. And you must remember that even as Peter encourages us to understand our suffering and live with hope and pursue holiness, you must remember the indicative The theology, the truth of what God has done, it always precedes the imperative. We always return to Christ as a center of life and the power for Christian living. We began today by talking about influencers, right? Models. And they tell us, you want this kind of life? Buy this product. And that works to sell widgets. But really, it's never as strong as we might hope. It doesn't work as well as we think. What Christianity tells us is something far different, it's far more powerful than influencer marketing. For Jesus does not stand in front of us offering a new spiritual product. You want a new kind of life? Here you can have it in exchange for your time or money. He offers us something different. He offers us a new life altogether. He offers to come and live in our hearts, to empower us, to change us from the inside out. He offers us the chance to become his children, to live in his family, to learn new rhythms and ways to be human. In short, he offers us himself. And I pray today that you hear him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this epistle that Peter wrote to encourage us in our faith, to point us towards you, to help us become more like Christ. Help us to hear it. And more than that, help us to take it to heart and for it to change our behavior and our ways. But we thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.